Christmas Eve. Santa came to say, come on. Kudos, wish your nose so bright. Won't you ride my stick tonight? You don't realize what people go through and what people go through to get to a certain place until you've actually talked to them and you find there's relativity there. There's, you know, we shared so much in just our conversations on the phone. She called me on the phone. I called her on the phone. How you doing, baby? You know what I mean? It becomes like that if you're genuine, if it's truly sincere and genuine. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I care about Mariah and I love her very much. And she's a sweet, she's a sweet girl, you know? And she's a singing girl. We got along just great. Just great. This show host, Mr. Haberdashery, a.k.a. Aeolus White, a.k.a. Um, I'm just happy to be here, honestly. I'm just happy to be here. Um, you know, I sound a little crazy. And it's because I did a little too much this weekend, you know. And it wasn't even that I was out on some whole shit, right? Because, you know, we my, I, I put my tonsils away, right? I put them away for... And, you know, we use them... <laughs> I mean... <laughs> um, but I haven't... <laughs> Let me shut the fuck up. But no, so it's 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 you know I but I worked I got home on Friday night then I had a late night, um and then I had to go to work on Saturday morning and then I went I went to visit like a friend of mine who's a chef at a new restaurant and I was just tired. <laughs> and I did that. I was just tired. Um, and then I worked yesterday. Like, and, you know, obviously all the different things um, that I am doing or a part of or trying to be a part of or communities I'm trying to support or things I'm trying to build and learn and blah, blah, blah. So I sound crazy. Um, yeah, and I look crazy too. So shout out to the patrons. But I, can't, I couldn't lead a mic like that. You know, I always got to talk greasy on the mic, you know? Um, I had to. I had to spit something for y'all today. Um, and that's what I'm doing. I opened this pod with the, the, you know, famous, like, I'm sure everybody has seen it. Or at least, like, you know, not everybody, but you know what I'm saying. Um, knows of that DMX, uh, you know, version or rendition of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So I just included it, you know, shout out to DMX. I mean, all right, rest in power, rest in peace to DMX. You know, I, I, there is a lot of sadness there. So I post, I linked the two because for many reasons, one, because uh, it was Mariah Carey's birthday and shout out, well, anniversary, shout out to her. And Whitney being who Whitney is and was, like what she thought about Mariah really mattered to me and her comments on, you know, when it's genuine, what it looks like to care for someone else, to build relationship and I guess a sisterhood, but like, you know, I've said this a brotherhood and otherhood and, you know, relationship between folks 
in the same industry or space or calling or what have you. And uh, that the greatest, some of the greatest singers to ever do it, the busiest, most successful people to ever do it were able to establish a relationship despite the world, you know, not the world, but, you know, the capitalists, like the labels, everyone trying, seeking to make money off of their opposition and ultimately their demise in the case of Whitney Houston. And I feel that, you know, in the, it just troubles with addiction really linked the voices Troubles with trying to cope, trying to break out of lifelong struggles. Um, Linked the two voices for me, um, DMX and Whitney. And although it did have this sort of homage to Mariah, which was to me like the sunlight and the whole thing, it was both. It just, I felt the pain. I hear the, the sort of the, the struggle. Um, and in the DMX case, like they're bringing that conversation about his mentor lacing his blunt and getting him addicted to drugs at 14 or 13 or 14, just what it means to be exposed to a lifelong struggle as a child to be exposed to something that will ultimately cost you your life by a mentor's hand. And although I would love to make comments about it being patriarchal and, and it being, you know under the guise of masculinity, you know, pass a passing of a, you know, violent and a toxic torch. This could happen in any gender construction. And um, now whether or not the help was given, I think is, but I, but see, it's, it's weird because as an artist, as folks that are involved in this cultural production folks that make other people feel either happy or you know sad or whatever feel their emotions more deeply we're not always invested in the emotional life and the well-being of the artist and when there's money to be made on the back end and when media and celebrity and you know are also revenue streams and when scandal can heighten celebrity when downfall and demise can heighten celebrity and when you think about the sort of strict utility of the black body how the white how racial capitalism regards us when you combine all that and package it up in an artist they don't give a fuck. There's no investment in our well-being because capitalism will allow them to make money off of us, of whether we're alive or dead. 
So all of that, it just makes me feel a way. Like, all of it makes me feel very sad. Azealia Banks, and she be right. I mean, she said some wrong shit in the midst of this, but she was talking about how, you know, a marketing person at a label can get health insurance for herself and her family, but artists aren't given that help. Artists aren't given that level of coverage and stuff when they sign to a major. And it's that, and it's to me, I mean... All of that, you know, just remo- just evidences how, like the, new, I don't want to say the neo-slavery of it all, but the, you know, Prince and everybody has made these comments and I do feel it. And I feel it every time an artist that was so, that was part of, you know, heralding this movement passes away so early. Like, I just want to see black people grow old. Like, I, it's interesting, I was at work the other day and I was had a client and she and I talked and she was just older. She's not old, but she was like an older black woman, like, 55 60 maybe i mean i don't know you know it's hard to tell because she looked young she looked you know but she had been or she looked young but then she told me some shit about 1999 and how like where she was in her life in 99 i was like oh okay so you're like at least you're at least 50 because you you know whatever she's probably like yeah but um she was talking to me about I mean, before I even got into what she was talking to me about, I loved just talking to her. You know, she was eating, she was eating her foie gras, eating her lobster technidor, drinking her Gunnar She started with, the, you know, had a nice little sidecar, you know, ate a, ate a souffle by herself. She was just living. She was dining alone. Full of smiles and light and advice and joy and all of these things. But she just was living her life. And I just, I love to see it. <laughs> I love to see it. Um, and in this way, like, I would have loved to see something like that for DMX. And, you know, it's sad that we don't have that. Um, And I I think, ironically, what I want to talk about this episode, and it might change and evolve and shift, but really is the importance of pleasure and joy as guiding principles for for marginalized people, for um, comrades in arms, for people doing the work. I mean... Because, you know, I've been reflecting on my career and what I want to do next, right? Like, I'm a writer. I um, can write almost, I can write, you know, so I could do my, I'm a songwriter, I'm a musician, singer, but I also am a poet. I write my essays. Like, I can, I could run communications for an organization, but I also have all this, like, finance and operation strategy experience. And it's like, I could go to a corporate thing to secure safety, Right, which I think is something that a lot of people I have the privilege of saying, so I know, but I think a lot of people not actually, I shouldn't say that, not a lot of people, some folks 
that have had access to elite education can say something like that. Um, but it need not be corporate. It could be even like a high-paying blue-collar job that gives you consistency, that you know you can count on your check. You know of that check you can count on. You get health insurance. You know you can get your kids through college. I mean, I know so many people that have put their kids through college, you know, bussing tables or waiting tables or whatever. People have built entire lives off of these, like, blue-collar jobs. So it's like, you know... It, does, it need not be a corporate, just, you know, whatever. But then it's like, you know, I love my I, writing makes me happy. So why would I go do some like strategy work? Um, but then I also really like what I'm doing now. I like the, the ability to create my art. But and I actually do love hospitality. I I found a real, real, a real, real call, not calling, but it resonates with my spirit. So I was thinking about really going into the psalm space, like sommelier, and learning more and becoming a psalm. And I, you know. In thinking about all of this, I started to think about, well, what does the struggle need? Well, what, what will win liberation for myself and my people? You know, like, what, if I went the psalm route, being a psalm is almost exclusively a luxury. It's a luxury good. It's an, a, a, a good and an experience, even when coupled with hospitality is like, or especially, and by that I mean like hotels and restaurants, it is, it is stratifying. It excludes, you know, it is not for the people. But I was talking to... Um, of, of a coworker of mine, and he was like, "Wine is for the people. Like, like this stuff is for the people, and that's true. Like I, like you know, ideal, like and ideally, ideally or idealistically, it's true. But when you look at the, the the space, it's you know, it's bougie, it's nasty. When you go into, I mean, these spaces are traditionally." home to the some of the most racist experiences that anybody could have it's like you know if you want to experience racism you go to a nice hotel and be black <laughs> go to a nice a really really nice hotel and be black and, and and you will experience racism in some way especially if you dark-skinned and even if you don't know you're experiencing it, somebody is probably talking about you, saying something. Or back in the day when it was more like, you know, co politically correct, a comment's being made. You know, the people that work in, the black people that work in these spaces always are under criticism. Undue criticism. And, all, and have to fight to the nail to get the same as everybody else, you know, so it's like, on both sides, as a guest, I mean, there was that, and this is obviously retail, but there was that story about Oprah going into Hermes and like, Europe somewhere, I can't remember where it was, I want to, I don't remember, but 
I feel like it was like Amsterdam or something. And they didn't know who she was and they treated her like she was they thought that she was threatening like stealing some shit or like she couldn't afford something that she asked for. And it was like, This is Oprah. This is Oprah. She good. She can buy your little Birkin. Your little Birkin on display. And it's like in these luxury spaces, like the racial capitalism and just the like, it's so nasty. I'm like the 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 movement don't need that. Then I thought about writing, and I love writing, I do, but you know, critically speaking, depending on what kind of writing it matters. If I'm writing some shit that's only couched in, you know academic or pseudo-academic language and it's and it's theory and there's no narrative no emotion no this but I'm building a strong rhetoric and I'm advancing a cause with my pen you know sure it could win rights but it's reformist and it doesn't really empower the people on the ground right and then obviously as a poet as a musician I can create art and cultural production, art and culture, but it, I, at the time, when I, and this is a long-winded thing, but I'm just talking, walking out through my logic, at the time, I was like, we love culture, but what culture has done, you know, when culture is not protected, it, is like fodder to the, you know, to, to the lion. Fodder to whoever the fuck eats fodder. You know what I'm saying? Like, these black artists are creating this culture only for it to be commodified and our bodies, you know, disposed of when we're considered to be, sur- like, superfluous, when we're, when we're no longer needed, right? They throw us out. <laughs> they steal, they copy, they imitate into oblivion until it's just a cheap, tawdry, like, version of the original. Like, all of this happens when you put your art into this machine. And then it's like, if you want to be a corporate girl, you can be a corporate girl. You might have, you, it might save you, right, from the, the, the insecurity of, like, food insecurity, healthcare insecurity, living insecurity, job insecurity. You know, it might save you from a lot of things. And that matters. The ability to invest in adopting a child for queer people, invest in, you know, the many reproductive options if you want to have a family and you are, you know, if it's, I guess, you are not a, like, I guess, heterosexual couple, you need money for that. Because to be queer, a queer, a non-heterosexual couple and adopt, particularly if you're a man, a male or male presenting, like, it costs money. Surrogacy costs money. These things cost. So, you know, I think about these things a lot. And also as the rule, as, you know, families and my family. And also the desire to create a liberatory space. Like what that means in terms of land ownership. Um, It's just a lot. And all of that to say that I think 
that as people that really love if you love your people, you love black people, you love people, if you love the earth, if you love deeply, you want to do what is best. But sometimes, especially if you have a praxis of self-examination, a praxis of reflection and, you know, interrogation. If something brings you joy, if something energizes you, if something inspires you to create, inspires you to mobilize, you should just do that. And this larger question of you know, what is best sometimes needs to, and what is best, i.e., like in the sense of like systemic for the system, you know, a, a systematic, some kind of like an equilibrium concept of bestness. Um, it needs to be subordinated to what brings you examined. Re examined authentic self generating self regenerating joy and i say all of those words in front of joy because joy pleasure all of these things are not necessarily good on their own right like if you don't examine it and I'm not saying it needs to be an intellectual examination, but a reflection, a body sense that this is coming from, that this is true, that this is, that this will sustain you forever. You know, the, the, the sense that, you know, I think sometimes like when you eat, and I love food, you know, I love food and I have a big appetite, but like you eat something sweet, and part of it, part of the joy that you experience in eating something sweet is the knowledge that it will be gone. Like the sense that it is over with, that it will not last you. It will not last, that it's a treat. Or even if you're somebody who's addicted to sweets, like you understand that it goes. There's, there's not a sense of it being sustaining, a sense of it being lasting, there is the impermanence of it that adds to the thrill. And I think unexamined joy can look, point you in that direction. But it's like, if something inspires you in a way that feels like it could last, that should be enough. And not just last, that it feels like it can sustain and the priority to sustaining, I think, is really important as an organizing principle. And I've said this before in my own work, but I forgot it as I became stressed, as I wanted to help the most people, as I wanted to build a life for myself and redesign a life in my 30s that could bring me all the other things that I wanted. And it's like... 
I have to remember to keep an eye on that the the priority of sustaining or sustainability. And it's interesting because it applies, right, to the role of an artist. So, like, in the three buckets that I listed in terms of my own career struggle, or my own career things with, like, you know, the, the psalm hospitality stuff on one end, the writing, the art as my middle, and the sort of strategy stuff as a third. My issue with the first with the first being that it was luxury, a luxury good. The issue with the second was that I didn't know how art sustained us in the quality of revolution in the context of revolution and the context of conflict. You know, I anticipate severe conflict and not even just war or something like that but every time every time a marginalized person seeks freedom the oppressor responds with violence every time it doesn't need to be in this like weird or grand you know nation state context it could be in a relationship it could be at work it could be, you know, at the corner store. It could be anywhere. Anytime somebody is used to you, anybody, anytime the world has oppressed you into a marginalized space or that the world has gotten used to you being in that space or that somebody else who was in that space has enough privilege to take advantage of the fact that you are there. And what I mean by that, the last one, is that sometimes we be too tired to fight. You go out the whole day, the day the world has beat you down because of your identities, you come home, and the person who's there knows you don't have anything left. Because they might not have much left. But they have enough to make you do what they want. Or they have enough to do further damage. And I say all that to say, like, I wondered, well, if... There's a compound where folks are living. If there's not a compound, but there are organizations, what is the role of an artist? Or, I mean, because, like, I could write prose. I can write, like, legally, like, do, like, rhetoric. But outside of rhetoric, like, what's the role of an artist? And some of that is, you know... To bring pleasure, to 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 develop and to de- develop and share a praxis on examining pleasure, not just moods like pleasant moods, pleasant moods too, because sometimes we need that levity, but making art that allows our bodies and minds to process. To process and examine our experience such that our joy, such that maybe our collective sadness, such that our emotional expression, 
is integrated and authentic and robust, you know, and sustains us through struggle. And I, you know, I was like, boy, if you can't build nothing, you can't make money, you can't, you know, girl, better get you a job, <laughs> you know, go back to school. You want to sit here and, and, and do some shit for the, for, the, for the struggle, girl, take your motherfucking ass to the to the to the to the to the to the university get you some school skills so that you can bring something that could help her survive and in thinking like that I discounted and I'm still discounting every being honest but I'm working through it discounting the role of the artist in the struggle and not even just the struggle but in living and sustaining life and the third one you know my crit- criticism of that is that it's a very, very selfish way of living. You know, and it's not that one cannot live in a corporate, uh, have a corporate occupation. And by corporate, we know what we're saying, right? We're saying high paying white collar um, job. It's not, I'm not saying that it's not possible, but. At best, it's extracted from an oppressive economic system, and at best, it redistributes it among the poor, which is valuable. But what is likely is that it solves your personal, your individual personal needs, and that's it. It brings you a joy that is contingent because it's not sustained if you're not working, right? So the joy that you get is a contingent joy, but it's joy that you worked for and perhaps you can retire and keep hold to to it. And that has just been your life. It's not... if, if you succeed in re- redistributing that wealth, or that income, then maybe it's generative. But at most, but that's not likely. And the sacrifice that someone like me would have to make to sustain that, Especially if the environment that I live in does not, that I work in, won't make space for my identities, won't make space for my politics, won't make space for my social projects, won't make space for my ethics. Especially in that case, the joy is going to be contingent at best if I even achieve that. So I say so in my meditation on pleasure I realized that or joy that I needed to remember on I need to I needed to remember and recenter examine joy as like the sort of guiding light and that there is a value to creating culture And I think that, and I think I might end on this, I think, 
I think that feeling like creating culture is not important is trauma that I that I have from white supremacist patriarchy or like industrial capitalism because that's what they want black people to feel like you know we have we have created so much culture that has been stolen from us and believing that it is not important believing that it's somehow secondary to survival has allowed them to take it from us has facilitated our lack of response our lack of systemic response to our culture being taken and we might mount localized responses we might mount you know responses that you know are Instant, I'm gonna say instantial, but that's not the word like coincidental or whatever. That incidents is what I'm looking for. That are you might mount incidental responses to this cultural appropriation or whatever you want to call it. But in reality, the problem is more systemic than that and requires a systemic response. And we don't do it because I know personally, I'm like, I don't know how, what the role of this is. Like, I love the stuff that I make. But I sometimes I, I just have trouble seeing it. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think. Oh yeah, I don't know if I want to go into that. I had this idea of um, talking about religion and how important it is. Like. Hmm. Maybe. All right, let's do a little quick one, and I might re-examine it next week. So, recently, I've been talking about, even on the pod, I've been talking about a need for a therapeutic approach for liberation, which to me meant and means that you take it on, you, you take seriously the fact your status as a traumatized individual, your status as somebody with PTSD from the count, the constant uh, terrorism that it is to live in a white supremacist, industrial capitalist, patriarchal, elitist space, elitist space. Um, and with that, since you, t- if you take that seriously, then you would also take the healing seriously, right? You would take the recovery seriously. Just like if I went to war, and you know, we now we now take PTSD serious, even though there was a time that we did not. The resources, the years, the study, the the focus that it would that we assume is necessary for integration and recovery I think something similar is needed for liberation right because it's not the case that if you just freed me from this bondage tomorrow I would automatically know what to do with that that I would know what it meant that when I slept I did when I entered my home late at night I didn't reproduce some of these things of the old world and I have a rule, personally, where I don't like to take people's crutches away from them unless I can offer up another one. Because I, I see that as violence. I see that as self-righteous. And I think a therapeutic approach to liberation 
would help people replace those crutches with things. One aspect of liberation that I personally have not resolved is religion and faith. Really religion. For black people, black Americans specifically, where for black Americans, the black church has acted as a capsule for our culture for hundreds of years beyond the hundreds of that is the institution that has kept a lot of our traditions alive that is an institution that has kept a lot of our standards high for art and our standards, our own, the, the stylistic blackness. There is, beyond that, the traditional, the spirituals that are living out, that are living artifacts from our ancestors that gave birth to a lot of the music again. That is considered American music. When you think about it as an institution that advocated for civil rights, that was concentrated black power in the context of like an electorate or whatever, political ideology, the home basis of this, the mobile, political mobilization being rooted in the church the distribution of food and resources and these communities that were systemically, we can say overlooked, but really, you know, designed to be deprived. The black church did a lot of this and does a lot of this. And then the role of faith that is, you know, at least for me, what faith gave me, well, actually, before I go to faith, I'll go to community and fellowship. You know, that folks that are, when you, the, the oppression makes you feel isolated. And the, and the social environment of church helps with that. Beyond that, though, the role of faith in my life has been, to, has been to tell me that I am not in charge of keeping myself safe. That I am in charge of doing my part. I am in charge of doing of being smart with my resources, I am in charge of defending myself. But I am not in charge of security. God is in charge of my security. God is in charge of my safety. When I put everything onto him and believed all and, and really lived in the word of, you know, no weapon formed against me and all of that. It freed me from the preoccupation 
of my own security and safety because when as a queer non-binary male presenting poor person survivor of a lot of types of abuses you know when I thought about the project of keeping myself safe it overwhelms me when I thought about you know we just saw what was it today with Dante right being murdered by a cop and them saying that it was accidental he meant to fire the taser when I took it seriously my security and said that this was my burden alone it overwhelmed me it overwhelmed me as a teenager and I was able to free myself from some of that in the context of faith, Christian faith. And connect with my ancestors and connect with my elders. And But when I think about what Christianity does as an artifact, I mean, not Christianity as an artifact, but not what it does, but what it is. Just the history alone. But its role in, I mean, its role in all the evils that we are enduring, right? From colonial colonization to this, that, and that, that. Like, its role in everything that we struggle with, um, or struggle against, it makes me think, well, what do we do with Christianity in a, in a free world? How does Christianity give get us there? What does it do? And like I have my answer to that. I've always had my answer to that, which I won't share on this pod right now, because the purpose was not is not to like proselytize or something like that. The purpose is to. I bring this up to say, one, I understand the, the pleasure and joy that faith allows. I understand the culture that the black church ushers and protects and safeguards. And none of that can be given up easily. Or none of that can be given up. What I think we should do is to take the therapeutic approach to this question. How do we do these things that the church has done, that faith does, in a way that ensures cultural freedom, or well, actual freedom, cultural reproduction, psychological well-being, for marginalized people, particularly black people. And I don't know if theory gets us there. I think therapy does. Um, and I'll leave, I'll leave y'all with that. I feel like that was a good way to end. I love you all. Good to be back on the mic. Hopefully next time I see y'all, I have a bit more energy. Energy. And be good. <laughs>